All right, what up, everybody? So I don't know about your neck of the woods, but hunting season is in full effect here in the southern zone of New York State, and I was blessed to get out there on opening day. Now, to be honest, I faced two challenges that day. The first was something basic, just sitting still. Now, I can't front. It was mad hard for me to just sit still and move slowly and deliberately. I really had to fight the urge to just swing my head around every time I heard a noise. But by the end of the day, though, I had gotten pretty good about, you know, not jumping at every dang sound that I heard. Now, the second challenge I had was walking in and out of the woods in pure darkness by myself. All right. Now, don't get it twisted. I'm not scared of the dark, but I am not a fan of not really knowing what is out there. To be honest, you could say I've got a fear of the unknown, but as with all things, I believe, all right, it's okay to be afraid of stuff, all right? What matters is what you do in response to the fear. That is what counts. And what did I do? I hiked my behind to my tree in the morning, and then I hiked it back to my car after. All right, so now let me shout out some folks who are making my hunting season a dope one. First up, Nor'easter Game Calls. I tell y'all every week that Mark is like an artist with his custom game calls. But not only are they pleasing to the eye, but they more than get the job done. If you check out his Instagram page, at Nor'easter Game Calls, and you're as impressed as I expect you're going to be, visit his website, wwwnor eastergamecalls.com and pull the trigger on purchasing your own custom game call all right um he's got duck calls uh, uh goose calls uh grunt calls deer grunt calls whatever you want mark can make it for you whatever you're thinking about having your call made out of talk to him i'm pretty sure the brother is like Dude is like a mad scientist. He has his regular gig. And then at night, he's in his shop, you know, building these works of art. So I highly recommend you reach out. Again, that's Nor'easter Game Calls when you absolutely positively want to get them in close. Next up is Onyx. All right. When it comes to being the number one GPS hunting app, they show and prove the Onyx Hunt app has been instrumental in all my scouting during the preseason and now that the season has started i'm using all the features the app has to offer know where you stand by checking out the onyx hunt app for yourself download it to your apple or android mobile device or you can just go to onyxmaps.com and lastly check out bowhunters united what is that you ask well it's a brand new national organization looking to make a difference for current and future bow hunters. They plan on doing this by doing a number of things. Um, let's see, training community organizations and providing equipment to help mainstream bow hunting and local programming. Uh, they're looking to bridge the gap between recreational archery shooters and bow hunters through mentoring programs. And one of my personal favorites, they're looking to provide archery range and program grants to increase bow hunter participation. All right, I could go on and on. But I won't. I recommend you check out Bowhunters United for yourself at www.bowhuntersunited.com and become a member today. Okay, so check this out. A few episodes back, I had mentioned that there had been reports of deer dying from EHD. 
epizootic hemorrhagic disease out here in New York. All right. Now, the disease is carried and transmitted via small bugs and outbreaks of the disease are most common in the late summer and early fall. Basically now. All right. Now, this disease does not. And I repeat, does not spread from deer to deer or from deer to human. All right. So far, the New York State DEC has received reports of, of approximately 750 dead deer from Dutchess, Green, Orange, Putnam, Rockland, Ulster and Westchester counties. Westchester is actually the county that I'll be that I am hunting in, I should say. Now, while EHD outbreaks can remove a number of deer from a localized population, they do not have a significant long-term impact on the deer population. The DEC states, and I quote, deer populations throughout the currently impacted region are robust and they do not have a plan to reduce harvest in areas affected by EHD at this time. Now, with bull hunting season having started here in the southern zone, the New York State DEC is asking for bull hunters to report any deer that may have died from EHD. All right. Reports from hunters help the DEC track the disease's potential spread. So if you are hunting anywhere in New York State, please, please, please do your part and report any dead deer that you find that have died from EHD. Now, to jump state lines real quick, check this out. New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy announced that the New Jersey Fish and Game Council would suspend black bear hunting after this year. Yes, after 2020, they trying to do away with black bear hunting. He posted on Twitter that the 2020 bear hunting season will be the last one. Apparently, the state is going to try to focus on non-lethal management of the bear population. During a press conference, Governor Murphy said that this new move, and I quote, would allow the council and the Department of Environmental Protection to engage in a thorough and complete review of current scientific data in developing a new black bear policy that promotes public safety and welfare while protecting important wildlife with a focus on non-lethal management techniques. All right. New Jersey's current comprehensive black bear management policy, which authorizes hunting as a bear management tool, expires June of 2021 next year. All right. Now, fortunately, the new proposed amendment comes too late to basically stop or in any way affect uh, this bow hunting and firearm season in New Jersey. But the Fish and Game Council's amendment published on Monday is subject to a 60 day comment period. And once that comment period is over, the current management policy will be removed from the game code, which means that no bear hunting can be held until a new policy has been adopted. <laughs> I honestly can't wait to see how this plays out. Um, hopefully, and I pray, these cats are going to remember the kid that got mauled by a black bear back in 2014. Hey, ladies and gents, welcome to episode 42 of When the Hunt Calls. I am your host, Cliff Cadet, and I appreciate you joining me. All right. If it is the first time that you are checking out When the Hunt Calls, the podcast, right? 
I truly appreciate you. All right. I truly believe you are going to you are going to enjoy this. Um, you go, you are going to enjoy this episode. You are going to enjoy past episodes. You are going to enjoy future episodes. If you are a regular listener, someone who has subscribed to the podcast, I appreciate you too. And I know all y'all are going to enjoy my guest. All right. So check this out. My guest today is Xavier Kathy. All right. He's a wildlife refuge manager from Tennessee. Um, I met this cat on Instagram. Um, he had reached out a while back and, and we had been touching base. Um, come to find out he's he's worn he's worn a couple of hats when it's come to to jobs within the wildlife industry or wildlife field i should say um and i really wanted to get him on um you know to pick his brain about you know what he does as a wildlife manager and whatnot but we ended up talking about not only his current job but his past jobs and even what it's like raising two little girls to enjoy the outdoors all right so sit back relax and enjoy again my conversation with xavier kathy all right, and here we go, ladies and gentlemen. On the line with me, this episode of When the Hunt Calls is none other than Xavier Kathy. What's going on, brother? Hey, what's going on, man? All right. So um, I have Xavier on with us tonight, um, mainly because I want to pick this brother's brain about his profession. Now, before we even before we even go into that, brother, I wanna I want you to introduce yourself. Um, you know, tell us a little bit about you. Yeah, man. So my name is Xavier Cathy. Um, you know, I, I work for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. But before that, you know, I was just kind of like the run of the mill type of person where, you know, I grew up hunting, fishing. I was kind of born into it. Um, I was li actually listening to you, Cliff, um, a little bit ago. And I contacted you just saying, you know, I appreciate what you're coming out and doing because somebody from me, I came out, I, I grew up doing this, you know, hunting, fishing, camping, hiking, things like that. And seeing somebody from your perspective coming at it from somebody who hasn't been involved with it, you know, their entire life, I really appreciated that. And so, like, that's why I came at it from you as far as just wanting to touch base with you. I really appreciated how you were approaching the subject because for me, the outdoors is something that. I was born into my grandpa and my uncle are the two people that really got me involved in the outdoors community. Essentially, my papa, he was um, going out west, hunting out east, you know, every day, ever since he was probably in his 30s. And my uncle, he's been a big influence on me himself. He's been hunting ever since he was teen in his teens. And so pretty much I was very fortunate in the fact that. You know, ever since I was, I don't know, probably eight years old, I've been out in the woods sitting at the uh, bottom of the tree of my grandpa's deer stand, um, fetching the four wheeler for him and things like that. So that's kind of my background as far as the hunting and fishing aspect. And it's just a niche that I fell into. And so I, I selected the opportunity to get into the wildlife profession because I saw everything going on around me. Um, I really enjoyed it. And I've got two daughters of my own that I am promoting to get out outside hunting and fishing, camping, hiking, all that good stuff. And I was like, I really want to be able to promote 
this type of lifestyle and continue to push this lifestyle. So I got into the same profession working for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. I'm currently in West Tennessee working on waterfowl. That's my, that's my main um, set of goals that I'm trying to promote is waterfowl numbers and things like that. And we can get into that later. But um, that's kind of my just in a, a real quick rundown of who I am. You know, I've been into the outdoors um, mindset a long time. I've even made it a habit to make it my profession and then my hobbies as well. That's what's up, brother. Like it one, it's it's just it's just so cool to see that, you know, you grew up in it. It's a it was a tradition in your family. Like you said, you started from eight and you turned what was a family tradition into now a profession. And even so you're now passing that on, you know, your tradition on to your daughters, which is really cool. Um how old are how old are your girls, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, no, my girls, uh, my oldest is Luna. She will be seven in December. And 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 if anybody wants to know, Luna is Aldo Leopold's uh, daughter, uh, one of the founding fathers of conservation. So, you know, that's why we named her Luna. And then um, our second daughter is Autumn. She'll be four in November. And that's my favorite time of year because, you know, that's the rut and everything. So. <laughs> So I even put it in the name. Hey, wow, wow, wow. <laughs> All right. So now seven and four years old. Now, as a dad yourself, you know, what I'm saying having grown up in, in what seems to be a rich tradition for you. Um, what's it been like trying to, you know, pass the outdoors on to your to your kids? Man, it's been it's been challenging, to be perfectly honest with you, because like my wife, she's in the outdoors as well. She works for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And like and the reason I say challenging is because I see it from her point of view and she's had a really tough go getting into this profession, being taken serious and things like that, because this profession is historically a male dominated profession. And so, like, I've been able to I won't say firsthand, but see it from her point of view, the struggles that she faces. And so, like, when I try to explain things to my daughters, I'm trying to keep in mind the things that their mother has gone through in order wow. to contribute to conservation, but also enjoy conservation, enjoy the outdoors. And like, so like before I met my wife, Ashley, I really didn't understand, you know, I didn't understand the things that, that, that women go through in this type of job field. But now that I do understand, like I'm approaching my daughters in a different way because I know that the struggles that they're going to have going forward, if they want to even just go out and hike. And, you know, there's a lot of other things that they're going to have to deal with um, other than myself or my wife, just because of potentially their skin color and things like that, because they're women and you know, I'm biracial. So like they're going to have that extra bit of um, stereotypic view upon them like I do and my wife does. So they're going to have that mixture. You know what I mean? And so I'm trying to communicate everything to them that I went through growing up, that my wife grew up, go, went through growing up. And so they're going to have like that double mixture. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Dude, I, 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 I truly commend you, man, because I've had, um, 
some female guests on the podcast, you know, women hunters who have touched on, you know, some of their struggles, um, you know, dealing with people in the hunting industry and the hunting community. But this is the first time I've had anyone talk about, you know, as parents raising little girls and preparing them for what they may or may not have to deal with, you know, in terms of struggles, uh, again, within the hunting community and the hunting industry. So I commend you because, you know, you're doing the right thing. You're, you're not, um, you're not necessarily babying them. I guess you're trying to get, you know, from an early age, get them to understand, uh, I guess what life is about, you know what I'm saying? Whether it's, I guess, uh, life as a whole or just when it comes to hunting. So, kudos to you brother that that's really dope i appreciate it man and, and you know it's one of those things that you know usually i don't really think about the kind of stuff that i'm thinking about now mm-hmm. you know as far as being a different sex or being a different race like i, I I'm, I'm a type of person i don't think about that mm-hmm. you know because i feel like we it's 2020 we shouldn't have to think about that you know, but like just today's what things are going on right now, like I just kind of kind of stress it a little bit because mm-hmm. we live in an area like like where I live currently, like it's a big hot topic. You know, mm-hmm. both of those both of those topics are hot topics. And, you know, I just you, I feel like I do a disservice to my kids if I don't at least expose them a little bit to it. That mm-hmm. way they're not taken off guard when they get to school or anything like that. Like my daughter came to my oldest daughter, Luna came up to me the other day and was talking about race a little bit. You know, she's six years old. She'll be seven in November. I'm like, you you should not be having to think about that right now. You know what I mean? So like, that's why like I'm taking a proactive stance and people can might agree or disagree. I don't care what you think. Mm -hmm. Personally, I'm taking a proactive stance and addressing it now. And just letting her know, like, look, you're going to have a little bit of a harder time than most people. I mean, that's just a fact, not because of me and not just because of your mom, but because of a, a combination of both. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's, no, that's, that's kind of the reason I'm, I'm taking that stance. No, I totally get it. I mean, though it's not related to hunting or the outdoors, but I, I try to do the same with my kids, my two youngest um are 12 and 8 you know my daughter's 12 my youngest son is 8 and um it's one of those things where it's it's two things i try to teach them it's one of those where the first one you know be prepared for the worst but expect the best out of whether whether it's people a situation whatever it is be prepared for the worst but expect the best and then i then the second thing is is i always do my best to teach them what's right and what's wrong and you know with the hopes that they choose right you know what I'm saying? But that if they choose wrong, that they're big enough to deal with the consequences that come with it after that. Right. But um, at the end of the day, it's just it's just reality. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. The 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 current climate our country is in, our world is in. You know what I'm saying? It's it's one of those where I strive to teach my kids to see the best in everyone, and to basically treat treat everyone that the way they want to be treated. That's right. And and don't judge anyone because of something because of like for example who they vote for or who what uh god they worship based them on how they treat other human beings you know saying judge them on the you know 
percent of their actions more than anything else. But um, that you know, that, that's a whole other rabbit hole that could go down. You know I'm saying we could talk about, we could probably talk about our kids for like an hour or whatnot. That's right. We'll have to, we'll have to do another podcast. Cast, right? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? But um, so one of the main reasons, um, you know, I wanted to have you on the podcast, like you touched on, you are a wildlife refuge manager. Yeah. But before that, um, you were actually a game warden. You said, right? Yep, yep. I was well, I was a wildlife officer for about five years. Yes, sir. All right. So now, being um, before we even go into that, all these positions that you you've held, um, you know, as a career and whatnot, um, is this you went to school for this? I did. I did. So I went to. I, I attended the University of Tennessee at Knoxville. Um, got my uh, degree in wildlife and fisheries management, and I minored in forestry. And I pretty much, like I said, I grew up on a farm, on a small family farm. And so the only thing I ever knew growing up was the outdoors. And mm-hmm. so, like, when I first got into school, my uncle, my, my, one of my uncles is a state park ranger. So, I initially started working at some state parks when I was going to college, getting mm. some um, experience there. And it wasn't until my junior year in college that we had a speaker from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, a refuge manager, come in to our um, wildlife society meeting and kind of explain to us who the wildlife and fisheries uh, were the um, service was and all that kind of good stuff. And uh, man, it just caught my eye because, you know, I enjoyed the park service. Don't get me wrong. I, I enjoyed the park service as far as getting out there, being able to communicate with the people, um, educate the people and things like that. But the you, the um, wildlife and fisheries really caught my eye because there was a lot of science involved, a lot of data collection, a lot of policy making, things like that. And so that's what caught my eye. I wanted to make a difference in the Fish and Wildlife Service, not just enforce things. And so like when our when my old boss who ended up talking to us at our Wildlife Society meeting, um, he came and talked to us and I just heard everything that they were doing. And it was just amazing work. And I immediately right then and there. I was a junior in college and I was like, that's what I want to do. And I applied for internship that summer. And pretty much that's all she wrote that happened back in 2009, I think. Mm -hmm. And what's 2020 now. So 11 years, I haven't had another profession since then. I mean, that's, that's how powerful it was for me. Dang. That's what's up. So, you know what, for those of us who who don't know what exactly is the u.s wildlife and as you spit out the title because it's long what exactly <laughs> what exactly is it um and what does it do yeah so the u.s fish and wildlife service we are a division of the department of the interior we were established by theodore roosevelt uh, our very first refuge was pelican island back in 1903 um, and so we've just pretty much grown. We are close to 600. Well, we're about 570 something refuges right now, countrywide. And um, we also have refuges in Puerto Rico and Guam. So oh, wow. territories okay. as well. 
um, we have division. So like you have the Fish and Wildlife Service, but you also have different. So like underneath Fish and Wildlife Service, you have things like Migratory Bird Division. You have Inventory and Monitoring Division. You have Refuge Division, which is what I fall under. And then mm-hmm. underneath those, you also have like um, refuge officers. You have fire and so on and so forth. Water ecology, all, all kinds of different minor. I won't say minor, but they're 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 different um, subgroups underneath those different branches. And so, me personally, I jumped under the uh, refuge system. So I am currently a refuge manager here in West Tennessee. My main objective is waterfowl management. I've worked in other refuge systems as far as I've worked down in the Everglades. I've helped out over in Kansas and Nebraska, um, Colorado, trying to think of everywhere else I've been, North Carolina. I mean, all over the place. So like we, we branch out everywhere. Um, me personally, I am currently a refuge manager, but prior to that, I worked in wildland fire. I worked in um, the the uh, refuge law enforcement division. I've worked in the biology division. I've worked in the water quality division. Um, wow. Pretty much a little bit of everything that I've done. And the reason for that is because one day I would like to get to the top of the top. Mm-hmm. And that way, nobody can come to me and BS me. That's kind of been my motto. Like, I want to know everything. That way, nobody can BS me when they come to me with something. You know what I, I mean? I know, but you know what? It makes sense. I and I could totally respect it. It could because it, it's always it's you. You wear all those. You spend a couple of years learning and wearing all those different hats when you are at the top. Which you know, talking to you, talking to you, I don't see that ever being an issue. Like you have said, uh, it's um. <laughs> And then when you are at the top, you know, you can speak to uh, a young game warden and be like, hey, this is what I used to do when I was your age, when I was in this position. You're yeah. saying and when it's a, when it's another when you're talking about, uh, I guess, water, <laughs> you are saying what, yeah. it's this is what I used to do and so on. So, you know it. And like you said, no one can BS you when the time. Absolutely. Comes. All right. So, you know what? I wanted to ask about, you know, being in law enforcement, being a game warden, because. Over the last year and change, um, learning about hunting, um, you know, bow hunting specifically for me, um, it al- I always see memes and jokes, you know, at the at the expense of the game warden. Like <laughs> it seems like they really get a bad rap. But to me, I think it'd be just kind of like, uh, I don't know. It's like it's one of those things. It's not like they're. Well, I honestly don't know. It's like part of me, due to ignorance, I want to say it's kind of like they're, they're, I mean, they're not like regular cops. You'd have to actually be doing something, you know, before I put my foot in my mouth. Let me put it this way. (laughs) (laughs) I would assume, though, that um, the only time game wardens necessarily get involved with anything is if potentially a law has been broken, correct? You know, yes and no. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll I'll let you finish your thought and then I'll I'll answer. Well, because my my whole thing is is um over the last year and change, I've come across um people in person, not even via social media, that um you know that have done things that are questionable. And even I know I'm like, heck, if a game warden came walking through right now, 
we all in trouble. You know yeah. what I'm saying? And then these are the same people that will go around, turn around, and then cracking jokes and talking trash about game wars and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yo, but if you weren't doing none of this, you wouldn't have anything to be talking trash about. Right, so, right. like, do right by, you know, just the whole process and there won't be a situation. Yeah. Do, you, do you find that? Because the other thing is, I also have been told that game wardens will sometimes just pop up just to check on an area. Not necessarily bust balls or anything like that, bust chops, yeah. but just to be like, hey, you got your license? Cool. Let me see it. Yeah. Let me see your ID. That's it. And if you have everything right. you're supposed to have, they keep it moving. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, the first thing I'll say, and then you can you can you can comment or add on this, is like game wardens are like any law enforcement profession. Okay. You're going to find different. You know, we're all out there for the same goal, but we all go about it a different way. So, like the way I kind of approach things on a law enforcement standpoint, I'm not out there to write a ticket i'm out there to gain compliance you know i want to make sure everybody is out there doing what they're supposed to do i you know especially on the federal side of things i don't get any kickback for writing tickets <laughs> you know what i mean like yeah. it's not like it's not like i get like acclimate or um you know what what what's acclimates or whatever it's called oh to, uh, ac- to, accolades 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 yeah. yeah sorry about that to 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 write a t- x amount of tickets you know there's no quota there's no there's no you know incentive to write tickets i'm out there to make the public land that i'm on more enjoyable for everybody no matter if you're a hunter or a fisher if you're a hiker or whatever so i think that's the number one um that's the number one thing i want to get across to people's heads that game more we don't get kickback so like and I, I'm not for sure on like the sheriff's departments, police departments, you know, however they operate. I'm not sure on that. So I can't speak on them. But I know game wardens, we don't get kickbacks. So like people always want to say, oh, the game wardens are out there just to make your life hard. Well, why? I mean, that's just making work for us. If I write a ticket, you know, that's just more work that I've got to do. I don't get anything out of it. You know what I mean? So like I'm out there to get compliance from from everybody. And so like that's my number one goal. If everybody's safe, if if everybody's doing right, then I'm I'm grateful, I'm happy. You know, and yes, I will pop out on you. I will ask and make sure everybody's good because as hunters, as everybody knows, the biggest thing is a safety issue, especially on public land where we have multiple use going on you know if you're on a national forest a federal refuge a state park a state forest whatever the case may be you're not the only one out there enjoying that property ever you know you might have bird watchers you may have kids fishing you may have other hunters you may have x y and z out there so i'm out there to make sure number one everybody's safe because I'm not just out there to protect the hunters. I'm out there to protect everybody. And so, mm-hmm. like, when I go out there to check you, it's not just for you specifically hunting. I want to make sure you're right. That way, every the other thousand people that might be out on that piece of property are, is safe. And then I'm not just checking the hunters. I'm making sure the bird watchers are okay because we have a lot of issues where bird watchers are causing disturbance, and that's hunter 
um, harassment. That's also against the law. So I'm also doing things like that. I'm not just out there checking somebody because they don't have orange. I'm making sure that everybody is complying with whatever regulations that we have on that public property, you know. And so, like, I just want to make sure that it goes across the board to everybody's ears that it's not just hunters were out there checking. It's everybody, hunters, fishermen, um, bird watchers, hikers, everybody. If you're doing right, you know, because I'll get I'll jump on you just as hard if you if you litter. I will jump on you just as hard as if you ain't wearing orange. I don't care if you got a gun in your hand, bow in your hand, whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's the biggest misconception is game wardens are out there only to hurt hunters. And that's completely false. Got it. Well, dude, I appreciate the work you you did, as you know, as a game warden, um, everything you did in law enforcement, because I totally understand. Because me as a new hunter, um, like right now in my head, I'm only focusing on lands that allow bow hunting only, mm-hmm. o- only because I don't trust <laughs> other people <laughs> with with firearms. You know I hear you. So so I hunt uh, about an hour outside of New York City because okay. it's bow hunting only through the entire season. So while other other um, parts of the the state have early bow, they have the firearm season late bow. This particular location um, is bow hunting only the entire season, and I like that because I don't I don't have one. I don't well I don't mind wearing blaze orange. It's the reason behind having to wear blaze orange right. is why you know I'm saying I'm uh I'm all about uh like I said just bow hunting only. I don't trust folks because um, I know I know what I can do. You know what I'm saying mm-hmm. and, and and when you go out hunting though you have to trust that other hunters are doing the right thing as well absolutely but uh all right man so let's jump into i guess your role as a wildlife refuge manager like how like what exactly are the responsibilities there you you spoke specifically to waterfowl like what do you do in relation to waterfowl okay yeah so like my current position right now is is definitely centered around waterfowl and i can tell you and we can go over a lot. I, I can just spit out a ton of things that I do. And then whatever catches your ear, just please ask me to, you know, elaborate. No and I can. No and so, like, my specific position is definitely waterfowl centered. And so what that means is my majority of the the majority of the time that I spend on my refuge is centered around promoting uh, wintering waterfowl habitat, which w- means so like currently I have my refuge is tw- almost 27,000 acres and we have specifically 868 ish, give or take a few acres, um, waterfowl sanctuary. And so which means that like between November 15th and March 15th, we don't allow anybody in no hunting staff is limited entry and because we're just trying to promote wintering waterfowl habitat and so part of that is getting that habitat ready each year and so we have some hot foods that which we call it which are like corn um for us it's corn that we, we put on the refuge. We use non-GMO corn. It's all pretty much natural. We don't use any of the 
herbicides that are banned or anything like that. It's just mm-hmm. pretty much uh, sh- shelled corn, essentially. And so we promote that, which we only do about 100 acres of that, not much, you know, because waterfowl are only wanting uh, your corn, your hot foods when it's really cold, when they're really needing that energy. But mainly my source, my main source is your moist soils. And so, like, I do a lot of moist soil management, a lot of your native vegetation, um, a lot of your millets, your barnyard grasses, which is another type, which is the type of millet, your sedges, your duck potatoes, um, your sprinkle tops, things like that. Just a lot of your uh, native vegetation. So I, I do a lot of promotion of that, a lot of water management um, for your waterfowl. Um, but on top of that, we do a lot of forestry management because hard mast is another native um, food source for your waterfowl. Mm-hmm. Um, do a lot of public use things. A lot of, um, I guess you would call it just general management activities such as your paperwork, like your environmental assessments and your section sevens and your compatibility determinations and things like that. You know, a lot of the things that are kind of boring for most people, but (laughs) they're necessary to keep the refuge going. Um, And then. Then then just your, you know, your general partnerships with your state agencies, making sure everybody's on the same page, um, working with all those different organizations. You know, we have a lot of invasive species issues like feral hogs and um, beaver issues, beaver dams and things like that, that really put a damper on our on our um, water management techniques Um, and just different things like that. So, like. I guess when people say, what do you do? It's it's most people get upset with me when I give them the answer because I say a little bit of everything because <laughs> and, and I understand it's frustrating, but I do. Some days I am in front of my computer writing grants. Um, some days I'm out working with USDA controlling feral hogs. Some days I'm on a tractor um, spraying uh, broadleafs trying to promote that uh, native vegetation. Some days I'm out there with the forester uh, marking timber, trying to get, you know, depending on what our objective is, you know, so like what, it, what, what, you know, I can go, I can talk on any of that stuff, whatever well, you're comfortable with. Well, um, what I wanted to touch on is you mentioned that there's a certain time of the year, a certain period that you guys close off the refuge mm-hmm. to, to hunting and even, and to anyone basically, and even limit, you know, staff um, out there. Yeah. So how, how do you determine, let's say when you open the hunting seasons, right? And mm-hmm. then do you guys also determine what, I guess, I believe the phrase is bag limits. Mm-hmm. Um, like, how do you guys determine that? Well, like I guess it's I guess it's important for me to just say straight up uh, up front that like me myself, I'm not involved in the specific bag limits um, as far as being determined. Now, what we do is we get every two weeks we do a waterfowl survey during the months from November through the end of January. We will give a do a um waterfowl survey 
And so what that does is like between us and all of the other refuges and other state agencies and private agencies that are doing those bag limits, that will kind of set precedent for what the bag limits will be the following year. Um, Not to mention also with the, you know, the spring hatches that they keep up with up north. So it's pretty much a combined joint effort between up north to down south because like when you're talking about waterfowl you have to look at the full circle mm-hmm. you know like so like when waterfowl start off obviously they you know they they start up north that's where they're breeding you know the majority of them um that's where they're breeding and that's where they start from and then they start moving south and so like it all starts from up north you know, your prairie potholes, your Canada regions, all those areas. And they move down south. For me personally, the Mississippi Flyway um, all the way down to, you know, Louisiana. So, like, we're communicating with a lot of different people, a lot of different agencies in that sense. And so, like, we're going to combine all that data. We're going to give it up to everybody, the big shots, I guess you would call it. And mm-hmm. they're going to determine how things are, you know. You have different private, you, have, you know, you have Fish and Wildlife Service, you have state agencies, you have private agencies like uh, Ducks Unlimited, Delta Waterfowl. Everybody, mm-hmm. We all work together. Got you know, it. We all have our own biologists. We all have our own studies. We all have our own numbers. And pretty much we combine all those and we send those up. And the shock callers, I guess, is what I call them. I don't know what mm-hmm. everybody calls them. I call them shock callers. They kind of determine what the numbers should be as far as bag limits and things like that, as far as harvest is concerned right now, if you look at the numbers, they are pretty consistent with what the 20 year average is um, going forward. So and nothing's going to change. I don't see going forward, but that's kind of how that system works yeah. um, without right. getting too deep. No, got it, got it. It's the reason why I asked that question is um I mean I don't I don't uh do any kind of waterfowling whatsoever. Um and uh you know I, I hunted turkey, um I'm deer hunting this season. So I was just curious because I wondered if this was kinda like the the method used for maybe like all determining you know bag limits and stuff like that for all wildlife because even now the um the land that i'm hunting is a preserve and they have a deer management program and um so on thursday just this past thursday um i sat for 14 hours sat in my climber and Mm -hmm. and, um what we're required to do as a part of this program is um try to keep a mental note of what wildlife we've seen and mm-hmm. on our way out of the pro- off the property there's a kiosk with a log and as i you know log out for the day that i'm leaving this property done hunting it i i log what animals i've seen how many of them i've seen and this mm-hmm. information then gets passed on to the program and i'm assuming like you said it gets passed on to the shot callers yeah, right. um, I was just curious to know maybe how they determine no. how how num- like how I guess it's determined how many animals in in whatever season it is are allowed to be killed or harvested, yeah. you know, for for that particular season. Right. Right. And one thing I just want to make clear 
is that so like waterfowl is a federal managed species okay? okay and so like because it's part of the MBTA, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, while waterfowl migrate, so therefore it cannot be state managed. It is uh, federally managed, and right. so like it is different from your whitetail species, or your squirrel species, or your fish species, or what, it, however you want to go down the line, and so like your specific state that's why your specific states have bag limits and come for big game now when you go into your waterfowl you're going to look and see a broad range you know everybody's kind of following the same um, bag limit because that's a federally managed species nice. see, like i just i just just others. learned something just learn something new because I, I didn't realize that. And it mm-hmm. makes sense. It makes sense because like you said, these are migratory animals. They're, yep. they're going from, I've got a buddy up in the Bronx. Um, it's guy Lewis. He was a guest on a previous episode and, um, and, and he hunts, um, he hunts, uh, geese. Uh, it was geese okay, a, a yep. week or so ago. And he was like, and he was explaining to me on the episode, you know, they're coming from up North. You know, saying yep. coming down, you know, resting in New York and whatnot. Um, yep. So, no, that makes sense. Now, does your, does the U.S., um, again, uh, fish and, <laughs> I, 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 I would give up on it. But the organization you work for, the agency you work uh-huh. for, do you guys work with um, other countries, specifically, let's say Canada? Do you guys um, work uh, at all with them with determining numbers and such? We do, we do, and and I don't know necessarily specifics, but when you're talking about migratory birds such as waterfowl, you definitely have to work with different countries because, you know, same thing with CWD and everything else like that. Water Animals don't know state boundaries. They don't know, you know, country boundaries. They're going to go where they want to go, so therefore mm-hmm. you have to... You have to work with your counterparts in different countries in order to understand the populations. Um, If you don't work with your other countries as far as populations are concerned, then you're going to be in a tough spot as far as your bag limits, as far as your ability to manage your specific game species. And so... It is very important that we work with people like Canada, South America, things like that, because if you look at waterfowl species in general and Mm -hmm. songbirds, uh, wading birds, any migratory animal, you know, even if you want to talk about mammals that migrate from the U.S. to Mexico, you have to work with your um, adjoining um, land agencies in different countries because if you don't then you're going to be in a tough spot because you have to have similar uh, man- habitat management plans wildlife management plans whatever you want to call them you have to have similar plans in order to promote those game species because if you get into this job field you're not into this job field to make this species decline you want to promote it you mm. want to grow it and so, therefore, wherever they're at, you want to work with that agency. Got it. 
Got it. You know what? Right, I'm so curious because you mentioned CWD. All right. Um, mm -hmm. Here in New York, we're actually dealing with a little bit of um, EHD, um, yep. which which uh, and, and for for those listening, if you're not familiar, uh, those two things, um, CWD is chronic wasting disease and EHD. Mm -hmm. EHD is a hard one to pronounce, but I believe it's epizootic hemorrhagic disease. Um, yeah, yep, there you and, go. Uh, <laughs> so, um, <laughs> and those two things are unique to whitetail, whitetailed deer. Yep. Now, um, yeah. All right. So now, oh, cervids. You. Yeah. Yep. So, so, so any of your, you know, your whitetails, your blacktails, your elk, your moose, mule deer, things like that. Mm -hmm. Ah, copy that. All right. So now, um, like I said, there's been a few cases um, found of EHD out here in New York, um, not too far for where I'm hunting. Um, do I'm just curious, do waterfowl deal with anything like that um, that you guys have to manage and keep an eye out for? Um, they not on the same scale of your cervid diseases like CWD or EHD. They have their own diseases and that would be just two or three podcasts probably <laughs> um, <laughs> there there's there's a lot of different diseases so like i mean anything you want to talk about as far as water or um mammal uh diseases go or avian diseases go you know you have botulism you have um brucellosis in certain mammals you have, i mean there's just there's a ton of different diseases so yes there is there is certain diseases you know one of the big ones is avian botulism mm -hmm. um and and there's a there's a lot of different things like that there's nothing to my knowledge now i'm not saying there's nothing but just nothing to my knowledge that compares to like cwd because cwd is a prion in your cervids or mammals you know it's the same kind of thing as crushfield jacobs disease in uh humans or mad cow disease or it's it's all prions proteins in the brain that cause um deficiencies in the host pretty much i mean just to, to keep it to keep mm -hmm. it short and so to my knowledge there's nothing in the avian side of the world that compares to that there are other diseases and other um plagues and things like that 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 um influence avian populations but nothing that would be hand in hand with cwd in cervids got it got it appreciate yeah. it all right so um, can I ask, I guess, in your opinion, in your personal experience, what's the best part of being a wildlife refuge manager? Man, you know, I kind of touched on it a little bit ago, and it is pretty much the ability to do a lot of things. And so, like, if you work in a factory, if you work as a police officer, if you work as a postal service carrier, whatever the case may be, there's nothing against those jobs whatsoever. I am more than appreciative because I could not live, with, live my life without them. But me personally being as a refuge manager, I get to do different things every day. And like, 
for me personally, as a I have a type A personality, and I absolutely hate doing the same thing every day. <laughs> like some people love it. Some people mm -hmm. love doing that. That's great. You know, I have multiple family members that love doing the same thing every day. That's great. I'm mm -hmm. glad because we need that. Like we absolutely need that. Yep. But me personally, I have a like, like, I don't know, like I have little kids. So like I was watching this movie up with my kids and this little dog, <laughs> yep. like he was running around. And he's like squirrel. Like that's me. Like I've got a squirrel brain. It's like I cannot keep my brain set on the same thing for more than a day. It feels like. And so like being a refuge manager, like one day I may be on a tractor. One day I may be in the woods marking timber. One day I may be doing waterfowl surveys. One day I may be talking to a group of kids. One day I may be in the office doing work like like every day is different. And like for me, that's what I love. I love being able to be sporadic. I'm a sporadic individual. Anybody that knows me knows that I'm sporadic. And like the good Lord just knew that I could not do <laughs> the same job every day or I'd go crazy. Like that's just me personally. Everybody's different. Duh, I, I can totally so like, yo, I could totally relate. <laughs> yeah, man. And so, like, me personally, like, I've been able, like, I, I used to work in the Everglades, you know, working with alligators, working with pythons and things like that. And then, like, they'd call and say, hey, there's a wildfire going out out west. Okay, I'm out in Colorado next day, you know, working on a fire. Like, that's how my brain works. Like, that's where I thrive. I thrive in being in different situations, different scenarios. And then like the good Lord blessed me with the ability to want to do law enforcement. And so like that was another huge component of my life for a long time before I took a, a higher management role. And so like being a law enforcement officer really changed my mind a lot on humanity because you know you know you look at the you look at the news a lot and it's like humanity is like going down the crapper but man when i was law enforcement man like it wasn't like everybody i came across so many good people and so like i know that's kind of a little off topic but i thrive in that situation i thrive being able to adapt and law enforcement it taught me to adapt Mm -hmm. And that just fed into my wheelhouse big time. And so like being able to go from a fire to law enforcement, to being in the office, to being on a tractor, like literally I can count. I don't know how many weeks like that was my week every every week. That was my week. You that's know, and so like that's the greatest thing about being a wildlife manager is you get to do so many things you get to see so many sides of life it's not even funny that's dope man but you know what so let me let me flip it on you then what's what's been the toughest thing for you about being a wildlife manager the toughest thing that people don't realize is being away from my family a lot man um that may not be tough for a lot of people, but for me, I feel like God gave me the gift to be a father. And 
I truly, truly, truly am blessed in the fact that I have two little girls and a loving wife. And a lot of people don't realize what wildlife managers go through. Like a lot of I got a lot of friends that still think that I ride in the truck all day and don't really do anything. Mm-hmm. And what they don't realize is like, especially on the federal side of things, is that anytime there's a natural disaster, you know, like I would spend, I spent, you know, when Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico, I spent a month in Puerto Rico by myself without my family. You know, all these natural disasters, fires, floods, things like that, like I get sent out to help out. And don't get me wrong, I love helping out different communities and different organizations and things like that. Like I thrive on that. I love it. But what people don't see is, you know, we have families too, you know, so like when we leave to help out, we're leaving our families and like, I'll leave at a month at a time. Like when I go on these wildfires, you know, I'll leave for a month at a time. And when, when I was a law enforcement officer, so like the federal law enforcement Academy is 17 weeks so you're gone for 17 weeks and then you're gone for another five weeks at your specific training. And then you're gone for another 10 weeks at your uh, field training with your field training officer. So like almost a year gone right there by the time all the breaks are in between. And so like, that's the hardest part, man. Like my dad's in the military where he was in the military. He retired almost 30 years in God bless him. And you know, I never understood it. You know, I always like was like, dang, man, why is he always gone? You know, but now I understand, you know, working for a federal agency, like understand, like you don't have a choice. Like mm-hmm. if you choose to be a public servant, whether you are military, whether you're police, whether you're a federal entity, like when you get called, you got to go. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if you're on the oil spill if you're on a hurricane detail, if you're on a flood deca- uh, uh, flood detail, whatever, mm-hmm. you've got to go. And that's probably the hardest part is, um, you know, being away. And not everybody has that experience. You know, I don't I don't sit there and say everybody should have that experience or does have that experience. But that's been my experience, you know. And and again, it's and I tell people at work all the time when they ask similar questions, it's like it's my fault. I chose to do this. Mm-hmm. You know, I chose to be a public servant. I chose to be a wildland firefighter. I chose to be a federal wildlife officer. Like I chose all this. Nobody put a gun to my head and told me you got to do this. I chose this because I care about the resource. I care about other people. And that's just something that I instill in my my kids. Like, look, daddy has to leave because he has to help people. That's that. And I don't know. I'm, I apologize if this is not with something you promote <laughs> on your on your channel. But like like God put us here to serve other people. Like, that's what I promote people. Amen. My kids. To do. It's like God put us here to help others. And that's what I want people to know is like and my kids to know is like God wants daddy to do this. Like we're supposed to help. We're not supposed to just take, take, take. We're supposed to give back as much as we can. Amen, brother. God bless you and your family, because I know it takes a supportive family to be able to to deal with you being away from home and whatnot. All right. So uh, enough about work. All right. Let's talk about (laughs) let's let's talk about uh, 
I guess something a little bit more personal for you, and that would be um, your most recent hunting trip, man. Yeah, uh, let, yeah, yeah. Let yeah. let me and my listeners know uh, what that was about. Yeah, man. So like, if so like me and my buddy Jason, we 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 went to college together, so we're really good friends, and 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 we kept up together. You know, we hang out all the time, all that good stuff. Well, like I don't know, two years ago, we. I text my buddy and I was like, man, we got, we got to do something different, you know? And, and I credit big time, like the meat eater crew and Remy Warren and Ben O'Brien and just, just all the, you know, Randy Newberg, all those people mm -hmm. credit all of them because they put the, they put the mindset in my head that, it's it's cheap to go out west, you know, like because <laughs> I grew up thinking, man, I, I like like most people, like most people, like I grew up thinking like I got to have twenty thousand dollars to go mm -hmm. out west and go hunting. Like that was my mindset. Like I went like my dad was in the military. We were stationed out in Fort Sill, Oklahoma for a few for about three years and like they had like a lottery draw elk hunt and it was like literally once in a lifetime like you you had a better chance of getting struck by lightning to get this draw <laughs> you know what i mean and so like that was my mindset on western hunting like so i never even thought of nothing of it eastern hunting was easy for me like tennessee you buy your license. Like I got my lifetime license. I can hunt whitetail. I can hunt. I can kill three does a day every day all year long, plus two bucks a year. Like what? I can do that with deer. Yes. I mean, wow. I, can kill, I can kill a hundred. I forget. Somebody did the math. I can kill over a hundred deer a year and not even think twice about it. So I was wow. like, whatever, you know, I can kill as many deer as I want. I don't care. Well, you know, I started listening. I started watching media or started listening to podcasts, started listening to all these other different avenues. Um, and I text my buddy, Jason. I was like, hey, man, let's go out west, you know, because I listened to how easy it was. You know, all mm -hmm. you can do is buy over the counter, you know, over the counter. Now, yes, there are some states that are draw and there's some science behind it and all that good stuff. Yeah, I mean, you're right. You're right. You know, you can do that. But like we there's like three or four states out there that you can do over the counter. And me and my buddy, we came up together and we said, hey, you know, after after several months of research and debating, we came up with Idaho mm -hmm. and we chose our unit. Idaho's a little different than a lot of states. Like if you look at Colorado, um, if you buy a over the counter tag in Colorado, most of the state is open where compared to Idaho where like you have different zones. So we had to go through extra research to figure out which zone we wanted to pick. And mm -hmm. so by using Go Hunt and Onyx and Google Earth and then just listening to forums and things like that, we chose a specific unit that we went with. You know, we went with the wilderness unit because we figured, hey, there won't be many people there because wilderness units are usually, um, no, you know, well, none, no wilderness units, to my knowledge, you're able to use a wheeled vehicle or aircraft or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So, like, we automatically, you know, subtracted a lot of people. So we'll use this. This is our very first one. You know, there was a lot of things on this zone 
on the forums and stuff that we thought that we heard from that we're like, ah, well, they're okay, you know. So anyway, we picked we picked that unit that zone, and man, we went for it, man. Like we 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 prepped for two years because neither one of us make a lot of money, and so like to go on a western hunt. For us personally, we had to buy a lot of different gear. You know, we had mm-hmm. to buy packs and things like that, tent. And um, so we, anyway, so we, and, and our tags, which weren't bad in Idaho. Idaho, mm-hmm. they are going up next year, but they're still not, they're still the cheapest to my knowledge. How much are and they? So when we bought them, so the license was one, gosh, I'm going to butcher this. I apologize. So I know somebody's going to correct me. Um, the, the license was like 115 and then the tag was 441 for the elk, I think. And then me and my buddy both bought a bear tag, a wolf tag. And my buddy, I didn't buy this. My buddy bought a lion tag, a mountain lion oh, tag. Oh, what? Mountain lion. You gotta be kidding me, man. <laughs> Man, and we saw tracks, bro. We saw tracks. You we are wilding, tracks. buddy. I, yeah, I would have seen tracks and head back the other way. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, like we can get to this in a little bit, but man, that was like, like that was a mental, that was a mental hurdle for me because I've never hunted. I take that back. We have had reported incidents of mountain lions in Middle Tennessee where I hunt. And so, like, I can't say that I've never hunted in predator territory, but it's been very rare, you know. But, like, where we were hunting, man, it was pretty much, you know, there there had been, you know, grizzly territory, mountain lion territory, and wolf territory. And so, like, we knew what we were getting into. We knew that we were going into predator-rich environments. Mm-hmm. But, but, man, like... Like me personally, man, I like adventure. Like if there's no story, it ain't worth it. It ain't worth, you know. But like, dude, you like, you just use you just use three words: predator rich <laughs> environment. You're bugging. Yeah, <laughs> dude. Listen, I started tripping um last week because I found out after after walking out from my sit on Thursday. I found out there's two bobcats in the area and everybody <laughs> trying to tell me on social media, oh, um, they were there when you were scouting. That don't make me feel any better. Be like, oh, Man. they're more they're more scared of you than you are of them. I highly doubt that. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> hey that's true though man like like like, man i got we need to talk again because i got so many stories i want to tell you i ain't got time for it though on this one like we we need to have like a podcast part part two oh definitely Uh, definitely but but man like like i'm telling you like me personally my personality like if my i won't say if my life's in danger but if there's something like if my hair's not standing up, it's not worth it. Like, mm. like that's my mentality. And and I'm not saying I'm right. Like my wife yells at me all the time because she's <laughs> like, you got two kids and a wife at home. You need to calm down. And I'm like, I hear you. I mean, I agree. But at the same time, like if my blood's not flowing, it ain't worth it. You know what I mean? And so like, we were in these like like we picked these spots knowing that it was going to be that way, 
But we also knew picking these spots, it was a rough spot, man. Mm -hmm. And, and like, so we, so like, and then all of a sudden, you know, so anyway, we got there or, or the hunts arrived. And as everybody who has kept up with the West knows, like this summer has been like, I mean, it's 2020. The freaking Mm -hmm. fires have been like nuts. All right. You know what I mean? And yeah. like, I'm just sitting there thinking, like, I was texting texting my buddy like a week before we left. And I'm like, man, what do you think? Because like Idaho's cool. They will let you give your tags back and you won't get charged. You oh, know really? what I mean? Okay. Like, right. like you, so you still have to pay for your license, mm-hmm. but to my knowledge, you have to pay for your license but your tags won't get charged. And so like we were texting back and forth and I was like, man, what do you think? And it was one of those things where it's like, man, we have been planning this for two, two years. Yeah. It's like, we've got like, we're going, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so like, so we, we, we went, we went and it was just phenomenal. Like you couldn't, you couldn't paint prettier pictures. You couldn't describe better views. You couldn't establish yourself in a better landscape than what we were in. And it was just phenomenal. I have been out West once before this. We took a family trip. I think when I was in seventh grade going several, um, states just viewing places that my papa used to hunt we owned some property like 10 acres in colorado nothing to write home about or anything like that so like we went out there and got to see a lot of those areas when i was younger but like like this place was just it was just amazing and and it was something that i can't i can't put into words Mm -hmm. like it was just it w- it was just phenomenal. It was one of those breathtaking places um that you only see in TV and and it was just it was just amazing. And I was so happy that we didn't call off the trip. It was just a, like like it's hard for me to put into words. <laughs> like like seeing the trees, seeing the mountains, seeing the different vegetation Seeing the animals were just uh, on another level, man. Just, just another level. That's what's up, brother. Did you guys walk away with anything? We did, man. And so, like, how, I don't want to. I don't want to bog you down too much. But yes, we 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 walked away with. I killed a black bear on our third day. Wow! And it was the first bear I've ever hunted in my life. It was the first experience that I got to. Okay, so let me back up. (laughs) So like me and my buddy, Jason, we're two different hunters. Mm -hmm. And he would say the same thing. That he was wanting to stay closer to the trailhead because he was under the mindset that everybody was pushing back further, deeper into the backcountry. And and I agree with him. I mean, I, there's no disagreement there. 
but I was still wanting to explore. I'm an explorer. Like I said a few minutes ago, you know, if 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 my life's not in danger, it ain't worth it. Like, I'm not saying that's right, but that's just my <laughs> mindset. Like, like, I want to push further and farther than anybody. I want to beat everybody. And again, that's my type A mindset. And so, like, we split up that day. And so, like, I was walking through these mountains. Man, it's beautiful. I mean, I was taking pictures. You know, I'm sitting here, you know, from my Instagram and my podcast and stuff like that. You know, I'm just sitting there taking pictures, talking to the camera and stuff, you know, just. And then at times I'd just be sitting there looking at the mountains, you know, like just just me and God talking, you know, and. I was kept walking and and I and I stopped, got a little water. I was out of water, so I found a creek, finally found some water, filtering some water, all that good stuff. And, you know, like, I don't know what it was, man. There was just something about that moment when I was filtering that water. Like, I was just like, Lord, thank you. You know, like I had a moment there where I was like, I spent like I'm 30 years old right now. And this is my first trip out west is my first time being this far away from home by myself. I'm deep in the backcountry by myself. You know, my buddy was at this point, come to find out, he was about four miles away from me. And so, like, I was just, like, alone. And I was just like, Lord, thank you. Thank you for letting me be able to experience this and just enjoy this and and all that kind of stuff, you know, the simple things, there's, there's, mm-hmm. there's little things in life like filtering water, you know, and, and I never got to experience that hunting here in the East. Cause I would just take a bottle of water with me in the tree stand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what I mean? And like, it was just one of those things where it's like this, we were in a wilderness area. So I know that it hadn't been touched by human hands as far as roads and buildings and things, obviously. And it was just one of those small little things in life that I was just so appreciative of. And so, like, I finished doing that and I started walking again. And, like, literally, I like, like looked up. I did a triple take and not a double take, a triple take. <laughs> and, like, this big old black bear was looking at me in the face. I was like, oh, crap. You know, it kind of startled <laughs> me, man, because I ain't never, I've never hunted black bear before. And, um, I'm not going to lie to you, man. Like, part of me had this. Man, I'm thinking about it right now, talking to you about it. It's emotional a little bit. Like, like I almost said, I'm not going to shoot this black bear. Mm-hmm. Like, 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 it was like, I'm thinking, like, I can, I'm, I'm like, I'm in the moment right now. Mm-hmm. Like, like I was sitting there because I've never shot a black bear before. It was so, it, it was majestic, man. Mm-hmm. And and I I was in the area that they were really wanting to reduce the black bear population. So like the manager and me was like, I need to do, I need to do what I need to do. But then the conservationist in me was like, man, it's so beautiful. But then also the conservationist in me was like, you came here for a purpose. And I, I I laid the hammer down and it was all she wrote, man. Well, okay. So I take that back. I shot, it ran two or three gallops and I thought, 
that it stumbled and fell. But I wasn't sure. I was a while. I was a ways away from it. And anybody that's hunted, you know, any kind of backcountry area knows that it's not easy walking. It's not easy climbing. Everything. Everything's a struggle. I don't give a dang if you're, you know, if you're just trying to go five yards, you know, it's a struggle. And so, like, I took off, you know, through this down debris and like between the blowdown and the creeks and the thick vegetation, you know, it took me a solid 20 minutes to get like 50 yards. I mean, mm. no, you know, that's how that's how thick it was. I got on this rock platform that the bear was on and, you know. I ran up thinking white tail down, you know, that was my mindset. You know, I've mm-hmm. killed how many, I don't know how many deer I've killed, but I've killed several and I'm not, I've never been worried about a deer charging me. <laughs> you know? And, but then something clicked in my head and I was like, Hey bro, this is a black, this is a black bear. You know, this thing has teeth that will come at you. If something's not right. Mm-hmm. You know, when I shot, it felt right. You know, I felt great about the shot. You know, I've luckily, you know, between law enforcement training and then ever since I was eight years old hunting, I mean, I, I've got I've got tons of hours of shooting experience in different conditions against different terrains. So I felt very confident in my shot, but still, I've never shot a bear before. So I ne I don't know what a bear is gonna do as far as reaction mm. was being shot. All right, I hear you. And so, like, I put I put my put my gear down and I pulled my rifle back up, going to this bear, and you know, I didn't know what to think, man. I I I thought I was like, shoot, you know, you see you see Hollywood, you know, you uh-huh. see bears, you know, charging people. So I mean, I didn't know what to expect, and but uh, I, I walked up and I was glassing around and I, I saw this bear, man, and. It was crumpled up and it was just so beautiful. And, and I mean, I knew immediately that it was down and, and I was there for elk hunting, but man, that, that day, like it was just, it was just an amazing feeling. It was an amazing experience that when I walked up on that bear and it was dead, like, like I knew it. And like I was there with my buddy, but at the same time I was alone because I was four miles from my buddy. I had found this bear. I had killed this bear and I and I found it again by myself in the back country in a wilderness area in Idaho. Uh, I mean, I'm a small town kid from Tennessee, man. Like, this, is, you know, it was it was different for me. You know, I'm not from from that area. I'm not I'm not used to that experience. Everything was new. And like I just had like a, a, a time of of thought. You know, like I was like, wow. You know, I came here not expecting anything. Like I don't expect anything in life. I don't deserve anything in life. That's my that's my mantra. Like anything that I get is a blessing because I don't expect anything. I don't deserve anything. But I was able to kill this bear and I was just thinking about it. I was like, like, this is such an amazing experience. This is an experience that people just dream about that I'm able to live out. And 
it was just a time for me as a hunter to to just just really because I took advantage of so many deer that I've killed in my life. Like like now when I kill a deer, I've been blessed enough to kill several bucks, several do- a ton of does. Like not that I don't think about it. Like I still shake like crazy. And like my knees still hit when I kill a de- when I see a deer. Mm-hmm. But like having that black bear in front of me in my hands, it was just a different feeling. It was a different feeling. And then, you know, seeing seeing it being by myself and then like knowing my buddy was four miles away, I'm like, like I'm alone. And like that brought a different aspect to the whole experience for me, because then it set in with me that I have to take care of this bear. And then I thought about it. You know, you're four miles. I was uh, close to five miles from the truck. You're not dragging that bear. <laughs> oh, wait, wait, me. You're, you're not gonna do. You're not gonna do like Cam Haynes and just you know sl- uh, throw hey. it over your shoulders and hike that out. You, you know, you know, Cam Haynes. He he runs a lot of marathons. That ain't me. If anybody, <laughs> if anybody sees my body type, they say he's built for moving stuff, not going long <laughs> distance. <laughs> I hear you. I uh, hear you. But long story short, man, I don't want to I don't want to reflect too much because I get caught up in it. But, man, I. My buddy was about three and a half miles from me. And like, to be perfectly honest, after I did my whole I I made me a little video, I took pictures and all that kind of stuff. Like I ran back for my buddy. But then, like, I was thinking I was like, wait, I'm not back home. I have no idea where my buddy's at. You know, he's off in the in the wilderness somewhere else so like i ran back a hundred yards back to this bear and i said hey xavier you know this is this is this is you 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 pulled that trigger this is all you 100 percent you and so like i had never skinned a bear by myself at all with somebody or by myself you know so i was like you're about to learn today, you know, do Kevin Hart. You don't learn today. You don't learn today. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, man, I was like, so I started skinning the bear, you know, and, and after I after I like just marveled over it and I started skinning out, I'm like, well, I'll skin a ton of deer. I'm just gonna skin it like a deer, you know. And and that was a whole new experience too, because like I heard like oh uh Steven Ranella and everybody else talk them talk, they're like animals never die in an ideal place like this bear died in between two snags so number one i had to pick her up in between two two dead snags and that real, was real quick, a, real quick real quick what's a snag so like a dead tree okay okay yep a dead tree so like in between two trees the bear died and so like I had to pick it up between those two trees to get it out. So that was because this bear, I mean, I'm not a judge on bears whatsoever, but I would have to estimate the bear weighed anywhere between 350 and 400 pounds. Dang, brother. Dang. Yeah, absolutely. And so, like, I picked it up between these two dead snags, these two snags, and positioned it in a situation where i could start skinning and obviously 
it died on a downhill slope. Hmm. And so like <laughs> I was I started skin, skinning the bear out and I was like, my goodness, you know, I was like this is first off, it's hard because I'm downhill every two to three minutes. I had to stop, jump uphill, drag the bear uphill because it was going down the cliff like like it was downhill, but downhill only stopped at a cliff. And so like if I would have let it keep going it would have just fallen over. And so myself included. So I had to keep pulling it uphill. And so like I did that, got it skinned out, got all of the quarters out and come to find out Idaho is kind of different. They don't require you to take any meat from a bear killed, which is different for me because I am a hunter. Mm. I, I eat everything I kill. I promote that. And so like they so like I was able to get all four quarters skinned out and I got the skull cl- skinned out because I wanted the uh, uh European mount for sure but man I could not because but there was probably at least 200 pounds of meat man and I could not carry any more and I got the uh pelt the skin and I could not get it out I couldn't get it wow. out. You know, that's how heavy it was. I got all of the meat. I got the skull. I got the paws. And but that was all I could get. You know, and, and it was just it was different for me. I mean, it was it was absolutely different for me. I it was it was a different experience. I, I, I couldn't I couldn't I, I I don't know what to say. I, Damn, bro. I was just it was a different it was it was just a different time and I, I I think that anybody out there that goes out west that wants to hunt they need to be ready for the pack out because I have to say at the time sorry if y'all hear that it's my dog she's barking no, that's all right um Montana here and um anybody out there that um goes on their very first backcountry hunt needs to be physically and mentally prepared for the pack out because i would have to say that that was the absolute hardest part of that trip was let me think i had because there was a lot of wolves in that area and grizzlies in that area so i i personally did not feel confident and comfortable leaving that bear hanging because there wasn't any trees it'd be different if there were some trees i could hang it high enough in Mm -hmm. um i did not feel confident and comfortable leaving that deer hanging just on the side of the mountain there because i figured by the time I was able to come back, it would be eaten. So I had to put all the whole bear on my in my pack, which was over 200 pounds. I guarantee it. I didn't put a, have a scale, but I guarantee it. And I encourage everybody to be in physically good shape. Because <laughs> I killed that bear three and a half miles from camp and about 1,200 feet elevation difference. Like I was downhill and camp was uphill. So 1,200 feet elevation difference and 
anybody that kills anything, be ready. Because that was a experience for me. And that just topped it off because at the time that was very hard. But I look back at it now and it's an experience that I would never forget. And talking to several hunters that were in that area before we left, I was the only one that killed anybody in that entire area. So that just put icing on the cake for me that somebody that had never been out west before, never been bear hunting or elk hunting or whatever hunting you want to talk about out there, mm-hmm. was able to get it done. Again, I think it's the grace of God, myself personally, but you know, also putting in that preparation and that dedication to get it done, I think, I think made it all happen. Long story short, to finish it up, fires drove us out. We had four fires close to us within, I don't know, wow. in miles from us. And we had spent five days in the back country. And by the time we pulled out, we both, me and Jason, both decided that it was not worth our lives or the vehicle <laughs> or anything like that to uh-huh. continue on. We saw a ton of vehicles um, um, leaving the areas. They had personal goods as far as like from their houses and things like that. And oh, so man. We were like, we got to get out of here. We'll come yeah. back next year. It ain't worth it this year. So long story short. We had an eight-day trip planned, but we only were able to do five days. But you know what? Those five days were more memorable than any hunt I've ever been on. Dang, man. God bless you, bro. That sounds like an awesome experience. Man, and you know, I guess one thing I just want to just stress, and and I've said it on my on my outlets as well, it's cheap. Like, those black bear tags in Idaho specifically – for the um for certain areas only forty one dollars do oh, not wow. make okay. the excuse that you can't afford it like we drove out there me and me and my buddy jason like we every other stop was we would buy gas mm-hmm. you know 40 bucks a pop or whatever the case may be is what we spent every other stop for gas and then you spend 41 dollars and plus i mean like if you just wanted to have the backcountry experience and go mm. bear hunting, you know, then, you know, you could do easily, easily, easily do it for like 300 bucks a person. Dang. Less than that. I mean, That's it's cheap. Like, yes, elk tags are a little bit more, $400 for the tag. Mm. But like. If you just want to get out west and do the backcountry experience, you can do it for like less than five hundred dollars. I mean, how many times do we as people go to the to a daggum, you know, fast food joint or coffee shop or whatever or buy something stupid on Amazon? I mm. mean, like, like you can do, you can go out west and you can have an amazing experience. Amazing experience. You know, shoot the the wolf tags are $35. Go buy you a wolf tag and just go oh, out. Wow. You know, for non-residents, the mountain lion tags are $41 as well. I mean, just go out there and just do it. 
You know, like I spent 10 years of my life just sitting there saying, man, I wish I could do it. I mm-hmm. wish I could do it. And it's like, oh, oh, I can do it. Like, you, right. you don't have to have a good job. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't have to have some, you know, six-figure job. I mean, that gum, you can go out there for less than $500 and go hunting. You know, you're camping. You know, it's an amazing experience. Like, we were camping at seven plus hundred thousand feet, you know, just enjoying the wildlife, enjoying the views, you know, listening to wildlife, just all kinds of stuff, man. Like, I just tell people all the time now, not 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 back then, but now I tell everybody all the time, it's like, just just go enjoy it because you can do it. It's, it doesn't take a lot. It doesn't take a lot. It costs more. People will sit here in the east and bank on getting a tag in Iowa longer than they will going out west. Iowa whitetail tag is like close to seven hundred dollars. Don't quote me what? on that. Yeah. yeah, that's still that's still crazy though. Even if it's a little less than that, that's still crazy. Absolutely. Like like if you get dr- and you got to get drawn for that for a whitetail. Like mm. you got to get drawn for a whitetail and it's still close to, as a non-resident. Compared to you can go to, let me see, like, again, I may be a tad bit wrong, but Idaho, Colorado, Washington, and Oregon, I think, all are over-the-counter elk tags. And they're all close to that, which you can get a whitetail tag for in in Iowa if you get drawn. Don't make the excuse. I guess that's my number one point. Don't make the excuse. Just got it. It is affordable. So if this if there's one takeaway that myself and my listeners should take is at least Idaho elk and bear hunting is not that expensive. It can be done on a budget. And, All right. And and then again, you know, it's not something I'm saying you can do every year. It mm-hmm. took us two years to do it. Got it. And 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 it's something that I've been exposed to. And and thank goodness I'm a part of uh, backcountry hunters and anglers because you know they help me also be exposed to the different possibilities. So like, like I guess that's another takeaway of mine is like get out there, be informed on your opportunities, get involved with different organizations because they will help you. Got it. Got it. All right. Listen. So here's the deal. I'm not Joe Rogan, so I'm not going to keep you for like two, <laughs> two, three hours. But um, to wrap this up, I didn't want to leave without at least you being able to to talk about your podcast because you and your hunting buddy, Jason, have a, your own podcast. Where can people find that? Yeah, man. So, like, I appreciate that. Everybody can find us. You know, we're on iTunes and Spotify. So, like, the podcast is called The North-South Connection Outdoors. Um, we, we, we podcast, we have an episode every week. We also have social media on Instagram. I have a personal Facebook that people can contact me on. And we are pretty much just talking about everything that we do as far as hunting trips. We, me and myself, Jason, we're both, uh, wildlife professionals. I work for U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And he has a new position now with Arizona Game and Fish. And so, like, we like to incorporate a lot of different scientific uh, podcasts in there as far as a lot of data and facts and things like that. Not just rumor mill type stuff. Mm -hmm. And so everybody can follow us on that. 
Uh, I encourage everybody to follow us on Instagram. Follow us on iTunes and Spotify. Subscribe. Let us know. You know, what it, you know, we're always open to different things as far as like what people want to hear about. You know, we don't have anything in specific in particular that we want to talk about. We, we just enjoy talking about everything. Um, but, you know, we have more details about this hunt that we just I just talked about a little bit on our uh, podcast. Um, but, yeah, that's pretty much all of our outlets. You know, we just do it as a hobby. You know. Mm. You know, you you know better than us. You don't make no money <laughs> off podcasts. Exactly. You know, we ain't doing it for no money. Exactly, just for the love of it, and just learning from other people, and just talking and whatnot. That's but it. um, all right, man. Um, listen, brother. Thank you, thank you, thank you for taking the time out to you know talk to me. Um, I really appreciate it. Learned a lot, especially in in the in the line of wildlife management. Um. So I truly appreciate it. Um, I guess other than that, man, yo, stay blessed, brother. Hey, man, I appreciate it. And 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 if anybody ever needs anything, definitely reach out to your wildlife professionals in your area. That's all I wanted. I just want to say that real quick before I get off. You know, we're not <laughs> no we're not here to cause issues as far as trouble. We're here to solve issues and to help. That's what we get into this job for. Nobody think that we're here to reprimand you or to cause you any harm. We want to help. So please reach out to any of your wildlife professionals in your area. I guarantee that they will sit there and help you. Copy that. Thank you, brother. Yeah, man. Appreciate it. Thank you. Have a good one. You too. All right, y'all. I want to thank Xavier for taking the time out to speak with me. I definitely learned a lot. Um, if you have any questions for Xavier, like he said, you can shoot him a message on Instagram. You can find him on there as at TNSC underscore outdoors. And remember to check out his podcast, um, you know, hosted by him and his buddy Jason. Um, it is called The North South Connection. Um, I believe the North South Connection Outdoors. I'll have a link to his podcast on my show notes or in my show notes, I should say. All right. So thank you for joining me. Thank you, Xavier, for coming on. Um, if all of y'all enjoyed that conversation, you know, do me a favor. Head to the review section of the platform you're using to listen to this podcast episode Hook a brother up with a five-star rating. Um, if you'd like, if you're feeling even more generous, go ahead and, and type up a dope review and hit send on that joint. You know, I would really, really appreciate it. All right. So in the meantime, y'all, remember to stay blessed and to respect the journey even when it's not your own. <laughs>